Pastor George here. I wanted to take a second and thank you for checking out our online messages. Our prayer is that this resource will challenge you, encourage you, and empower you as you uh, dig deeper in your relationship with Christ. But in no way will it replace God's plan for your active involvement in a local church. I do want to take a second and ask you to uh, prayerfully consider as you participate and listen to this resource, partnering with Revive as we uh, pursue our mission of seeing people live their fullest life in Christ. You can do this by going online to revivechurchga.com backslash give and making a one-time donation or setting up a recurring gift. It's through the generosity of others that we're able to provide um, a resource like this one. With that being said, uh, I do want to thank you again, and here is today's message. So if you have uh, been here the last few weeks, you know we are in this, the middle of the series called I Am. Uh, we're looking at Jesus in his own words. There's a, a lot of things, especially um, in our culture today, that kind of paints Jesus in different lights of, you know, he was this loving prophet, he was a good teacher, he was a liar, he was, wasn't, I've heard people say he wasn't even real. Like there's, there's all kinds of things that go on in our culture. And this series is kind of like, well, well we believe Jesus is real. And, and we want to know what Jesus says in his own words. And we've kind of talked about how he's always pointing back to the fact that he is God. And he's God in the flesh. He's come to earth. And this, this series is kind of looking at all those different I am statements where he's, it's Jesus in his own words. So this week, we are talking about Jesus as the good shepherd. Um, and so this comes out of John 10, uh, one of my favorite chapters in all of the Bible. Um, there were there has been multiple times throughout my life where John 10, 10, where Jesus says that I've come to bring life to the fullest, has impacted my life in, in ways I can't even begin to describe. Over and over again, that verse, and it's kind of been the theme verse for Revive. Like That's where the name for Revive came from, was that we want to bring life. We want to let people live their fullest life in Christ. It's kind of our goal, our vision as a church. And I'm actually not even going to talk about that verse today, all right? Because there's a sense of... of um, Next week, Lucinda's going to be talking about Jesus as the gate, when he says, I am the gate. And as it turns out, I am the gate is part of Jesus being the good shepherd. And so it's all kind of in there together. So I want to kind of lay the groundwork, and, and I'm going to put this into context today. And it's going to be really the same context, so there could be some overlap with Lucinda next week, but it's good for us to hear it again. So so I want to make sure that, that uh, I'm going to kind of put that out there at the beginning, there may be some overlap between this week and next week because part of being the good shepherd is being the gate. But I'm going to leave the beginning of John chapter 10 up to verse 10 for Lucinda next week. And I'm going to pick up with chapter, with verse number 11. So I'm going to go ahead and read it and pray for us and we'll jump into today. And this is Jesus talking to the, the Pharisees and he says this, I am the good shepherd. I'm the, the, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees a wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. The wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. 
the man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me, just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and they shall, and they shall be one flock with one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. The Jews who heard this were again divided. Many of them said, he is demon possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, there are not, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that whenever we need to hear your voice and, and hear from you, that you've preserved this for thousands and thousands of years, that we can open up this book and we can study Jesus and we can study the Bible and it's studying you and all that you are. I pray this morning that you would stir our hearts, you will open our hearts, open our minds, and that it would be your words, not mine. Lord, let us learn what it means to see you as the good shepherd. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as we, we jump in, I want to first kind of unpack, you know, I, I'm, sometimes I can get a little carried away in being excited about the language and Greek and Hebrew and all that stuff. But I think there's a sense of when you study the Bible that you don't have to know how to read and translate Greek or Hebrew, but it's good to kind of know that there's some resources out there that can point things out, right? And so there's a, some free resources online. One of the things that, that I've pointed out to people is uh, faithlife.com. And it's actually like a study Bible that you can get to for free. Um, but some of the, the, the resources, they point out that this word good, when Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, that there's a lot of different words for good that he could have used, right? Uh, there's the sense of, of moral good, like someone who is a good person. They help others. They put others first. They serve. They love. So that's a, a good person. But that's not the word good that Jesus uses here when he says, I'm the good shepherd. He actually uses the word for good that means like beautiful, right? It's beautiful. It's inspiring. It's it's wonderful to look at and see. It's moving to, to witness, right? There's this beauty. So, so it's like when I say Lauren looks good, right? Like there's this sense of it moving us and there's this sense of this beauty and awe-inspiring that comes from looking upon it. So, so when, when Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, he's not invoking this moral thing that he is, that he's doing. It's actually a beauty. And I think this is really important because as we look throughout the, the Bible today, we're going to look at a lot of the Old Testament, some of the New Testament, where we see that this shepherd, it brings this peace, right? It brings this rest. Think about Psalm 23, right? Uh, you know, the, the good shepherd lays me down beside still pastures, lays me down beside still waters. Like the, the good shepherd is there. It's read at every single funeral you've ever been to, right? Because there's this sense of peace and rest that comes from the beauty of the good shepherd. And so I really want to, my goal today is I want us to, at the end of this message, to, to look at the beauty of Jesus, our good shepherd, and it to raise up in us rest and awakening. So I want the beauty of Jesus, our good shepherd, to bring rest and awakening. I think about, uh, when I was trying to think about this illustration, I thought about 
that, that beautiful good, and, and of course my mind went straight to my wife, right? And so I, I have a, an illustration of kind of around our wedding, right? If you've ever, um, actually, has anybody ever been a part of a stressful wedding? Maybe it was your, yours, your kids, your, somebody you know. Like, okay, so there's, when it comes to weddings, whenever I'm doing premarital counseling, I'm always like, look, there's no such thing as a perfect wedding. There's something's going to go wrong. There, for uh, my brother, they were doing communion, and it was like, 10 minutes before it was supposed to start and they didn't have the bread or the juice. And like, I had to sprint across the street to Trader Joe's to buy something so they could have communion for their wedding. Their uh, pastor didn't show up until after it was time for the wedding to start because he got stuck in Atlanta traffic. Super stressful, right? For, for me and Lauren, there was uh, first, let's talk about the, the uh, reception afterwards. We didn't think about seating, and so we had all of the important people were there taking pictures with us after the ceremony. So when we get to the reception, there was nowhere for our family and immediately loved ones to, to even sit and eat, right? So like a big goof on our part, <laughs> stressful. And, and we'll go back to the, the, the rehearsal dinner the night before, there was all kinds of things going wrong. There was, not, I don't want to get into details, but there were some, a lot of tears that were shed. There were some words that were said. There were some lasting relationship issues that came out of things that, that went down on the night before we get married. I can remember uh, going to our house that we were already renting, even though only Lauren was living there. And I remember going there and she was there with uh, one of her bridesmaids and she was just crying because of some of the stuff that had happened at the rehearsal dinner. I mean, it was stressful. Some things, it, it was not ideal. Okay. Now a lot of it's been smoothed over. Relationships have been mended, but at the moment we're going into our ceremony the next day and I'm like full of nerves, full of stress, full of this worry because of all the stuff that had happened the night before. And it's just like, I mean, it's not a great situation. And then also you got to take in the fact that like, I've always had this little tendency to be afraid of commitment, right? And now I'm making the biggest commitment of my life. And so there's this, these nerves that kind of raise up in me. And there, there's just all of this emotion. You don't really know what's going on. I don't really even remember some of it. And then there's that moment where, where the music starts playing and those doors open up for the church and Lauren walked in and it was like all of that melted away, right? There she is in her dress being walked down the aisle. And it's like, I, honestly, I'm looking back in my mind trying to picture it, and I don't see anybody else in the room. I'm not thinking about anything else that's been happening. I'm, I'm just, that moment, everything melts away as my wife is walking down that aisle. She's so beautiful. And there's this, this service that we've put all of our heart and soul into. We have the, a time of worship, time of prayer. We've got the, you know, we say our vows. There's this sense of, of this all and beauty of this whole ceremony. And it's to this day, one of the greatest moments of my life. There's just this moment where, where I can literally feel like heaven meets earth because we wanted it to be a worship service. And it really was that. And all of that, the stress and the anxiety and the nerves, all of that just melted away in that moment because of the beauty of that service and the beauty of my wife. And so as we go into and we study this shepherd, that's what I want our goal to be. I want our goal to be that when we look upon, we gaze upon Jesus, our good shepherd, that the stress and the anxiety of life melts away because of the beauty that is our good shepherd, Jesus Christ. So for us to get there, for us to get there, I want to put that passage that we just read into context. Because I think in order to see the richness of the good shepherd, it has to be put into context. And so this really 
it goes all the way back to John chapter 9. And so if you uh, the light of the world was the beginning of John chapter 8. You get John chapter 8, then to John chapter 9, and Jesus actually heals a blind man. And then there's this dialogue that goes on. And then he says, I am the good shepherd. And in that moment, he's talking to the Pharisees. And immediately, you got to remember, the Pharisees, they, they know the Old Testament upside down, backwards, forwards. They can recite it. They have it memorized. They've, stu- they've spent decades studying the Old Testament. So in that moment, when Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, their minds automatically go to all of that text that they know, right? And so one of the, the, one of the big texts that they go to is actually Ezekiel 34. So they go to Ezekiel 34, where it talks about God is, is prophesying through Ezekiel to the, to the Israelite leaders <clears throat> about being the good shepherd, and it's a fascinating passage, and I, I encourage you to go read the whole thing, but for the sake of time, I'm just going to pick out a few of the verses. But it's a, it's a fascinating passage, especially in light of what Jesus is saying as he's the good shepherd. So, so this prophet, the, the, Ezekiel is prophesying to the Israelite leaders, <clears throat> and he starts out by saying this. He says, the word of the Lord says this, and this is Ezekiel 34. I'm starting with verse 2 and reading to 6. It says, Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? But you eat the curds, you clothe yourself with the wool, and you slaughter the choice animals. But you do not take care of the flock. You do not strengthen the weak. You do not heal the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally so that they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for the wild animals. My sheep wandered over all the mountains and on every hill. They were scattered over the whole earth and no one searched for them or looked for them. So Jesus saying, I'm the good shepherd. He immediately provokes this Ezekiel 34. And one of the commentaries kind of broke up Ezekiel 34. And they said, the first part here is God talking about evil shepherds. So God, he said, the leaders of the Israelite nation, they have neglected those that are sick. They have neglected those that are weak. They've neglected those that are hurting. And they've cared only about themselves, only about who they are, only about their prosperity. And they've stepped on and hurt whoever they needed to hurt on their way, on their path to getting their power. And so you have these evil shepherds that God is prophesying against. He says, woe to you, you evil shepherds. He's, He's calling them out on their bad leadership. He's calling them out on their misuse of power. And then he keeps going on. I'm going to pick up in verse 12. It says, as the shepherd, as a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from the places where they have been scattered on the day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out of the nations and gather them from the countries and I will bring them into their own land. I will, I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel in the ravines and in all the settlements in the land. I will tend to them in a good pasture and the mountain heights of Israel will be their gazing, grazing land and they will lie down in good grazing land and there they will feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. 
So he calls out the Israelite leaders for being evil shepherds. And he says, you know what? You are the evil shepherds, but I am the divine shepherd. And in that moment, he puts his foot down. And he says, I will protect them. I will lead them. I will feed them. I will provide for them. I will heal them. God is saying, I'm the divine shepherd. And if you are going to be bad leaders, well, I'll lead them by myself, right? And so he points to himself as this divine shepherd in contrast to their evil shepherding. And then he goes a step further and he looks to, to what the, the commentator says is, the future shepherd. He says, so I will place over them, this is starting in verse 23, it says, I will place over them my servant David, and he will tend them, and he will tend them with, and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. The Lord hath spoken. So here's, here's the deal. It says that David will rule them. Well, this is after King David. So when he's saying that that David will come and rule them, he's saying that there will be a descendant of David. There will be a good shepherd that will come down and he will will take over. This is pointing to the Messiah. This is pointing to the the Messiah, God coming to the earth, taking over the kingdom, flipping the tables. This is is when God is, is prophesying about Jesus, prophesying about the one to come. And so this gets the Israelites, they're excited, right? So so not only is he casting out the evil leadership, he's declaring that he is the divine leadership. And and you know what? He's gonna bring Jesus who is gonna be a leader but it's a shepherd form. And so Jesus, when he says, I am the good shepherd, he's saying, I am David. I am the what that Ezekiel is talking about. And this makes the Israelites mad, right? This makes the Jews mad. Like over and over again, when Jesus makes these I am statements, at the end of every one, it says that the Jews were divided. It says that some were angry. They plotted against him. They didn't yet take him because it wasn't yet his time. We've looked through this series and over and over and over again, they're mad because Jesus is making a claim about his deity. He's referencing the Old Testament and saying, I am the one that God was talking about in Ezekiel 34. I am the one that is going to take care of my people. I am the one that sees their pain, that sees their hurting, that sees their anxiety, their stress, their worry. And I'm going to be the one to take care of them. Jesus is our good shepherd because he fulfills that promise. He fulfills that role. So when we read this this beauty of I am the good shepherd, in that moment, I want us to say, man, I have my stresses. I have my anxieties, but my good shepherd is there to provide for me, to take take care of me. And so what I want to do to invoke that emotion in us, I want to unpack what the good shepherd does. And that's that's what we see here in, in John chapter 10. And we see that, that God is the good shepherd. So I want to, as, as we get there, I want to kind of provide more context about this story about the blind man. So you've got the disciples are with Jesus. <laughs> I feel like I'm rushing through the disciples are with, I'm excited about it. Disciples are with Jesus and they're talking to him and they're like, Jesus, this man is blind. Who sinned? Was it him or his parents? And Jesus is like, no one. No one's in this. Is, he's like this for the glory of God so that, so that God's work can be put on display. And so then Jesus does this really disgusting thing where he spits in the mud, right? And he spits on the ground, he makes some mud, and he wipes it on this guy's eyes. And, and the homeboy is like, oh, this is gross, right? He's like, this is disgusting. I want to wash this off. The good news is, okay, I'm put, adding a little bit. Jesus says, okay, go to, to the, the pool of Siloam, Siloam, right? I probably butchered that. But go to this pool and wash off the mud. And so this guy's like, deal. Right? You just, this is literally your spit. You don't have to tell me twice. I'm going to wash this off my face right now. Right? So he goes to, to the pool, and he washes off his face, and it says he goes home seeing. So, so Jesus performs this miracle right there in that moment. 
And, and some people recognize this, and they're like, they're like, hey, wait a minute. Is that, is that buddy that used to be by the gate that, you know, he was blind and always begging, but now he can see and he's like walking around and happy? There's no way that's the, there's this debate that happens, right? And de- so eventually they approach him. They're like, hey, are you the beggar? He's like, yeah, that's me. I'm, I'm the one. Like, I can see now. Like, he's, he's pumped. He's excited. He's like, you, you should, should know what happened to me. Like, I can see now. And so they're, they're like questioning him. He's like, I'm the, beg- I'm the beggar. It was me. I'm that guy. And they're like, well, who did this for you? And he's like, it's that guy that they're, they're calling Jesus. And it's, it's funny, as he's telling the story, he actually, he recounts what happened. He's like, that guy that they call Jesus, he made some mud and he put it on my eyes. I'm pretty sure he deliberately left out the spit part because he didn't mention that, right? So he, he just made some mud and he put it on my eyes. And then I went and told me to go wash it off in this pool. And I did that. And now I can see. And, and they're like, he doesn't even register that there's this debate going on about this Jesus guy. He just knows I was blind and now I see. What he doesn't realize is that the people who are talking to him is a bunch of snitches, right? And so they're like, oh, wait, that Jesus did what? On the Sabbath? Oh, I'm telling. So they run over to the Pharisees and they're like, hey, that Jesus guy just healed a man on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees begin to kind of debate in their own and and I want to actually pick up, and I want to re- start reading. And this is going back to chapter 9, and I'm going to pick up with verse 13. But this, the Pharisees, they begin to investigate what's going on. So they brought the Pharisees to the, they brought the Pharisees the man who had been blind. And now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened that man's eyes was a Sabbath. And therefore, the Pharisees also asked him, how had he received sight? And he's like, dude, look, he put mud on my, you can kind of hear the frustration. He like, the story gets shorter and shorter. He's like, I'm tired of telling the story. He put mud on my eyes and I washed and now I see. That's it. That's all there. Again, he left out the spit bar. I put mud on my eyes. I washed it. I can see. Like, that's how he healed me. That's, that's the story. I don't know what you want from me. And some of the Pharisees, they said, this man is not from God. He does not keep the Sabbath. They're talking about Jesus. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So again, they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man and said, what have you to say about him? It was your eyes that were opened. And the man says, look, he's a prophet. I, that's all I, I couldn't see. Now I can see he's a prophet. And they still did not believe that he had been blind and had received sight until they sent for the man's parents. So they sent for the man's parents. So like this guy's like, you saw me begging for years at the gate. Now I'm not begging. Now I can see. And they're like, he's faking. He wasn't blind. It's all been an act so that Jesus could, so go get his parents. So his parents come. They still, they still did not believe him. So we know he is our son. This is verse 20. We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know that he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. And that is why his parents said, ask, he is of age, ask him. So you see what's like, have you ever seen like when uh, somebody famous or politicians or somebody are asked an interview, they kind of dodge the answer and they dodge the question. That's what the parents do here. They're like, look, I can tell you he was born blind because he's my son. 
But as how he was healed and who healed him, you got to ask him because they're terrified of the Pharisees. The Pharisees have already had created this reputation of saying, if you support Jesus, if you give him credibility, if you follow him, they're literally casting them out of the synagogue. They're saying, you don't have a right to participate in these religious ceremonies. You don't have a part to find forgiveness. This, this was everything to these people. And the Pharisees are saying, we are casting you out because you endanger our power. Hey, let's go back to Ezekiel 34. What were the evil shepherds doing? They were casting people out because they were endangering their power. The, the Pharisees are in this moment. We see Ezekiel 34 playing out right in front of our eyes. The, the man's parents are terrified because of the way that the, the Pharisees have been treating people, stepping on them, abusing their power. Verse 25 says, he replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I do know is I was blind, but now I see. And they ask him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? The guy's got to be getting frustrated. Like, are you kidding me? We've gone through this. He answered, I have told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? (laughs) Shots fired, right? Like you guys keep asking me, you want to be his disciples too? Then they hurled in, they were mad. They hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we do not even know where he comes from. This is just negligence on their fault, their part, because they could go, they have the records. We read them in, in Matthew, right? In the beginning of Matthew, they have the records to access, to know that they, where this guy comes from, that he is this David that is spoken of in Ezekiel 34, but they just don't look. They don't look because of what it would mean if he is. They would lose their power. So, so they, they say, we do not even know where he comes from. If this man, where was that? <laughs> and the man answered, now that is remarkable. You do not know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a, born, of a man born blind. If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And th- they threw him out. Again, they become the, the evil shepherds of Ezekiel 34. And what does Jesus do? Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when, they found, and when he found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. And Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking to you. And the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And Jesus said, for judgment, I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees were or with him and heard him say this. And they asked, what, are we blind too? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Look at that, again, going back to last week, it was a setup. So there's this moment where this man has been thrown out He's been thrown out because this Jesus guy heals him. He's broken. He's in need. He spent his life begging, blind from birth. The shame that comes from that in this culture, we can't even imagine. He spent his life begging, and Jesus encounters him, has compassion on him, heals him. And because of that, he places his faith in Jesus despite all of the opposition coming against him, and he is thrown out. He is thrown out. He's cast out of everything good in this culture. And Jesus says, here I am, your good shepherd, to rescue you. 
to be that for you. And then he launches into this long lecture to the Israelites, to the, to the Pharisees about what it means to be a good shepherd. Part of that is, is, is Jesus being the gate. You have to come next week to hear about that. But then we get to John chapter 11. He says, I'm the good shepherd. And this is what the good shepherd does. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. The first thing that makes Jesus our good shepherd is he dies for us. And it's so powerful. You go and you read chapter 10, go to verse 18. It says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. So Jesus, there's a, there's can be this tendency to think, well, Jesus was God. Of course he died. But, but we know that it didn't have to be that way. Like he didn't have to die. He could have chosen to not go through what he went through. I mean, go and think about the garden. Think about when Jesus is in the garden, he's praying. He, it literally is like this image of him collapsing. He's so, he has so much anguish that he's sweating blood. And he's saying, God, take this from me. Three times he says, take this from me. And he looks at it and God says, he says, you can. God, you have the power to take this cup from me. You have the power to deliver me from this. And I don't, I don't want it. Like, but, but then, you know what? Not my will, but yours. There's this sense of we think that Jesus did, may not have had to experience all that goes on in this. But, and if you've ever like, anticipated something bad happening, you know that what's going on and, and the anxiety and the stress and the anguish you go through. Well, Jesus is in this moment and he has this anguish because he knows the cup that's coming. He knows what the, the, the torture, he knows the death, he knows the darkness that is coming his way and he's in the garden and he's pleading with God, take this from me. And a lot of times I, when, I, when I read that story, especially now that I'm a parent, I can put myself in the position almost of God and, and looking at my girls and knowing if that was their future. And they looked at me and they said, take this from me, dad. Take this pain from me. What, immediately, I would just take it from them. I wouldn't make them experience that. But just like Jesus was human, he was also God. And in that moment, he had such love for you. He had such love for me, such love for the blind man that he said, I'm going to that cross because it's the will of my father and it's the way for their freedom. And there's this moment of Jesus being the good shepherd and laying down his life on his own willing willingness to do so. He had the authority to lay down. They didn't take it from him. He chose to walk into that because it was the will of his father. There's, that's a love there that I never want to. I never want to lose sight of what Jesus did for me. It can be easy when you when you spend a lot of time in the church and you spend a lot of time following Jesus to, to kind of let that become a, a point of yeah we've heard that before yeah I know the gospel yeah I know Jesus died for me but are we still broken by the beauty of Jesus facing the cross on His own free will choosing to take that path for you and I. We know if you've, if you've heard a message on the Good Shepherd, you've probably heard illustrations of David who had to face these bears and lions. And it's part of what shepherds were expected to do. It's in contrast with the, the helping hand we read about earlier, right? And so Jesus is saying the helping hand is a lot like these Pharisees. They only care about themselves. They run when trouble comes. But a good shepherd is willing to fight the bear. A good shepherd is willing to take on the lion. Is willing to lose their life. But ultimately, when you look at the role of a regular everyday shepherd, they go into that situation hoping to keep their life. They're willing to lose it. They're willing to take on that bear. They're willing to take it, but they're hoping to, to defeat that. Jesus went in knowing he was going to lose his life. He went in knowing he was going to die. And he did that out of love for you and I. 
So when you look and you think about the good shepherd, you think about the, the, where your life is and, and how you long for that beauty and that rest. Find rest in knowing that no matter what you've done, no matter what you've said, no matter who you've hurt, no matter how you've fallen short, that Jesus still loved you so much that he went to the cross for that forgiveness. He willingly laid down his life for his sheep. It says it over and over again throughout that passage. Three or four times it says that he laid down his life. That's the point that Jesus is driving home. That I love them so much, I laid down my life for them. So the good shepherd dies for his sheep. The other thing we see is that the good shepherd loves his sheep. Now, this doesn't necessarily say that he loves his sheep, but it says he knows them right? And there's this sense of, he says that I know them, like the father knows me and I know the father. And a few minutes, a few sentences later, he says, then the father loves me. So the father knows me and the father loves me. That kind of becomes the, the way we interpret that phrase. And when we think about the word know, and we think about the word know, like knowing someone in scripture, it's not informational. It's not knowing about them, but it's knowing them intimately, We think about going all the way back to the beginning. Adam knew Eve, and they had some kids. (laughs) Cain knew his wife. They had some kids. Adam knew Eve again. They had Seth. And in the book of Amos, God says, Israel, Israel, I have known. It wasn't that, that God only knew about Israel. He knew about everybody. But there was an intimate knowing of Israel. Uh, We see that in... um, Joseph begins to have concern because Mary is pregnant and he hasn't yet known her. There's this, this, this word known is, is, is a euphemism for intimacy all throughout scripture. And I want to point out that, that it's, a, it's for intimacy, not just sex. And a lot of times in our culture, we think that intimacy and sex are one and the same, but they're not. And the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, depart from me. I'll say, depart from me because I never knew you. It's not informational, it's love, it's intimacy. It's this sense of of knowing so intimately. And he says, when I know my sheep and they know me, there's this relationship, this bonding, this laying down of his life for them. And And I think about intimacy in our culture, it kind of gets mixed up with sex. But the truth is, you can have relationships that are intimate that don't involve sex, and you can have relationships that have sex that don't involve intimacy. And the truth is, when the Bible is talking about intimacy, it's talking about that deep, personal, loving, knowing someone. It's not informational. Like if I came to you and I said, yeah, I know Lauren. You know, she's got brown eyes, brown hair. Her uh, birthday is February 9th, 1989. Her favorite color is yellow. Her favorite animal is elephant. She's got two kids. She's married. And I gave you all this information. Like, okay, yeah, he knows. He knows her but I can give you that same information about Elon Musk after spending 15 minutes on the internet, right? Just knowing information is not an intimate love. And God's getting at here is is there's this sense of intimacy and we as human beings are created for that intimacy. It's that intimacy that allows us to thrive. And so I'm not just talking about marriage. I'm talking about relationships in general and relationships with our heavenly father. And I want to kind of go back to last week. If you were here last week, I talked about my experience in the past of having this negative self-talk and how the light brought healing, right? And when the light was shine on, shone onto that, that I was able to bring healing from that. And that happened inside of intimate relationships. If it weren't for moments of vulnerability with my wife, knowing that she would love me no matter what, that, would have never, that, that negative self-talk would have never come to the light. 
If I wouldn't have had a group of, of pastors that I meet with monthly, if I wouldn't have been in that relationship where I was like, hey, here's what's going on, and they were like, hey, bro, you gotta chill out with the negative self-talk. If I didn't have an intimate relationship with them, that healing would have never happened. That, that intimate relationship is what allowed God to shine light into that darkness in my life. So when, we're, when it comes to relationships, we have to understand that intimacy is what allows God to move in and thrive in all those. And it's not just healing. It's not just healing. I think about the intimate friendships that I've had that at this point have lasted years and miles. I mean, we, I've got friends coming in next week. He was my roommate in college. You don't get much more intimate than that, right? And my roommate in college, and here we are. I don't want to say how many years later, they lived a state away and his family's from California. Like he couldn't be more different from me, but we just bonded and we had this intimate. And so, so they're coming next week to visit for the weekend. And I haven't seen them in two or three years, especially since the pandemic. And so there's this sense of these intimate relationships. They're more than just healing and fuzzy. They're fun. Like the, the time that I had with AJ hanging out, the fun that we had in college, like the, these intimate relationships allow us to thrive. And and we were created for intimacy. And here's why I want to get back to pointing at Jesus. Because intimate relationships here on earth, we need them, but they're not going to happen overnight. The truth is there are marriages, maybe you know somebody who has a marriage that has been lacking intimacy for decades. And the truth is those marriages aren't thriving. And for them to heal, those marriages have to have intimacy. That's not going to happen because they, they hear a message. It's not going to happen because of a conversation. There needs to be counseling. There needs to be maybe a couple of books that are read. It has to be worked for. That relationship that I had with those pastors in the, in the, around that round table, it took months and months of meeting together, somebody initially being vulnerable, and then someone else being vulnerable. It took, it took work. It didn't happen overnight. So if you're in here this morning and you're longing and you're thinking about how you need that intimacy and you think it's not going to happen with the person tonight, tomorrow, that's going to take work. But what I can tell you is that the work that's required for intimacy often involves laying down your life. And you've got a savior and a good shepherd who has already done that. And you can have intimacy with your heavenly father, with your good shepherd Jesus right now by surrendering all that you have and leaning into him and being in relationship with him. He says, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. That is a intimate, personal, loving relationship. And Jesus does that for us. Nothing on, all it is is faith. There's nothing you do to earn that. He laid down his life because he loves you. There's nothing, there's no action. There's no special phrase. There's no dance. There's no potion. There's nothing you can do except for place your faith in Jesus and you enter into that intimate relationship with him. He is the good shepherd. He died for his sheep and he personally, intimately loves his sheep. And the last thing we see that the good shepherd does is that he unites his sheep. We read in here that there are sheep of another pen or another fold that he wants to bring into this pen with one shepherd and one flock. It's actually because of that phrase that you and I can even be his sheep. Because he's talking to the Jewish people. He's talking to, to the, 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 this nation. And he's saying that it's the Gentiles, it's those outside of this nation that become a part of my flock because of him laying down his life. 
So that very phrase is the sense that we have now been united with all of Christianity. Anybody who has ever placed their faith in Jesus becomes a part of this fold. It's because of that that we are included in this new covenant. And we have this, this calling on our life to bring others into that as well. And this is kind of where the action comes from. So we talked about this sense of, of rest and awakening at the beginning. And I used the illustration of our wedding day. And there's this sense of finding peace and rest in that moment. But I'll never forget as we had, me, Lauren and I shared communion. After we shared communion, there's a worship song playing and I'm just praying over her and I'm praying over the, uh, our marriage and our future and our kids and whoever they may be, whatever they may look like, whatever they may come. And I'm just praying over our future. And in that moment, I had this moment of just brokenness and realization that like, Lauren and I are, are in this together and we are called to, to, to co-lead our family into the future, to follow Christ with all that we have. And it's going to take work, and it's going to take effort, and it's going to take energy. So there's this sense of rest that happened inside of our marriage. There's a sense of rest that happened inside of this moment. But there's also this sense of awakening and passion that grew in me to motivate me to, to, to carry on our marriage and do whatever it takes to make it last. And so there's this sense of knowing that Jesus is our shepherd, that there's other people that, are, that need to be brought into the fold. There are other people that need to be brought into the pen to follow the good shepherd. And so I hope that, is the, that when we look at Jesus as the good shepherd, there is rest, but there's also awakening in you to, mo- to push forward and bring people in to be a part of this. I mean, that, if you don't know how that's done, just look at the story we just read with the blind man. I don't know. I was broken and God healed me. And, and he just, he's telling everybody, I don't know. I might not have all of your answers. I might not be able to say and give you the words you're looking for. But what I can do is I can testify that I was lost and now I'm found. I was blind and now I see. I was broken and now I'm healed. And we can become little shepherds following the good shepherd, bringing other people into this flock. And, I, and it makes me think about... And, I debated whether I was going to say this or not. I guess I'm going to say it because it can be kind of political, but I don't think it's political and I don't want it to be political. But I think a good example and a real practical way that we can do this right now is, is revolving around the situation in Afghanistan. There's people that aren't Christians that are trying to get to America because they've spent 20 plus years helping American soldiers and they know they're going to lose their life. And it takes all of 10 minutes on the internet to read news stories or see posts online of people saying, not my home, not these refugees, they're not coming to my backyard. But as Christians, we are supposed to be for refugees. That's what Jesus did when he laid down his life. He laid down his life for people who were not yet Christians, for those who were still sinners, yet while we were still sinners. So even though they may not be Christians, that we have a, an obligation, we have a duty to to bring them in, to love them, to serve them, to be a bridge for them. And even more than that, to, to, maybe they are Christians and we bring them in, but there's a couple of stories and I wanted to share these stories because to me, they, when they came across my uh, experience this week, I was broken and it motivated me. And the first one is, I'm gonna butcher the name, I know, but it's Zaki Anwari. And Zaki Anwari was, he grew up in an Afghanistan that was free from the Taliban. In fact, as the American soldiers, and I, this is, it's a complicated situation, but he grew up in an in a era where a stadium that was literally built for public execution by the Taliban became a soccer stadium. And he became one of the, the young men that grew up playing soccer in this stadium. And he never knew the Taliban. He never knew it as anything other than a soccer stadium. 
But as the tel- Taliban began to take over, he realized that he that there were people, soccer players, who were literally beaten to almost to death in a crowd because of the only reason they were beaten was because they played soccer, and the Taliban was against that. And so his whole life was was around soccer. He was a, a rising star. People, had, he he had a bright future playing the sport, and he didn't want to lose his life. He didn't want to lose the ability to play soccer. He didn't want to face the torture that could come from the Taliban. So as the the American planes are taking off, he actually grabs a hold to the landing gear. The plane gets up to like 120 miles an hour before he falls off to his death. But he's so afraid of what's going to happen to him being a soccer player under the Taliban that he's willing to lose everything. And you've got Joe Poe on the internet saying, they're not coming to my home. There's another podcast that I listened to with a lady named Christian Taylor, and and she has a son who fought in Afghanistan. And he actually wrote like a short story that you can find on the internet called uh, The Boy on the Red Bike. And he talked about how he, as he was over there in Afghanistan, he became friends with this young boy who would drive by their post every day on a red bike. And they would wave. He never knew his name. It never really got to be more than just being friendly and saying, hey, but every day, every day he could count on this boy riding by and they would say, hey. And there's this almost like this unspoken relationship that began by just saying, hey, every single day. And then one day he saw some of the Taliban soldiers come and take the boy off his bike. And he knows, and most of us know that that's not a good situation when soldiers come and take a young man like that, that we don't know what's going to happen, but it's never good. And he actually requested permission to take those soldiers out from the, the people above him, and they denied him permission. So in that moment, he had to, sit, he had to make this decision of whether he was going to deny his leadership or if he was going to um, and, and kill the soldiers and rescue the boy or obey his commands. And he chose to obey his commands and he never saw the boy again. And, and I listened to this podcast this week and the mom was just saying, he still, still deals with this. So it's not just those that are coming over. It's the veterans for the last 20 years who look at what they've been, how they've served their country and they don't know whether it was for nothing or not. And there's all these debates over what's politically right and what's politically wrong. And what's not happening happening is the church is not loving these broken people. They're not saying, you know what? Jesus looked at the blind man. He didn't say, well, you know what? He's done this right and he's done that right and he served this way and he did that. He looked at the blind man who was broken and had compassion on him only because he was broken. Because that's the glory of God, healing people that are broken and bringing them into the fold. And as Christians, we are called to do that. We are called to to listen to Jesus, follow Jesus, be like Jesus, and have compassion on broken, hurting people, whether you agree with them or disagree with them, whether you like them, whether they're right, they're wrong. We are called to be little shepherds following the steps of the great good shepherd. The same way that he brings us beauty and rest should bring in us awakening to serve and love others like he has. So there's the sense of the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He loves the sheep and he unites the sheep. And in us, that brings a duty to find rest in him, but awakening to love and serve our neighbor. And I want to close with Psalm 23, because when we talk about the good shepherd, we talk about finding rest and awakening in him. I don't know that anything captures it quite like David in this psalm. It says, Lord, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. 
He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right path for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. And surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. J.D. Walt says this, when we are well shepherded, we need not worry about anything because the shepherd provides everything. When we are well shepherded, we need not worry about anything because the shepherd provides everything. Jesus draws water from the ancient well of divine revelation when he says, I am the good shepherd. We think back to John's gospel where Jesus sat us down in a vast green pasture where he fed us with fish and loaves. He took us to the deep water of Jacob's well and he introduced us to the living water. And I'm gonna add now he's taken us to the pasture and shown us that he is the good shepherd. His presence, his countenance, and his words have restored our souls every step of the way. My challenge today is to no matter what's going on in your life, look at the good shepherd. Go find rest and be awakened. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you laid down your life. I thank you that as we look through this world, there can be so many things that can confuse us. We, a lot of times we don't know where we're supposed to go, who we're supposed to follow, what actions we're supposed to take, but we can find rest and awakening in you, our good shepherd. Remind us, Lord, of your beauty. Never let the fact that you voluntarily went to the cross on our behalf, never let us lose the sight of that. Never let us be, to stop being moved by that. Continue to raise up in us this awe and this passion when we gaze upon the beauty of you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.